0: Speculation begins over who will become the next prime minister of the UK following the resignation of Liz Truss, who's stepping down after just six weeks. It's Friday, October 21st. This is WBMR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, higher mortgage rates are cooling off the hot housing market. Home sales fell 24% last month compared to a year ago. Also this hour, in their final debate, Massachusetts candidates for Governor Maura Healey and Jeff Deal clash over energy
1: policy, the economy, and abortion. He wants to defund Planned Parenthood. He said he wants to jail doctors who provide abortion care. I know it's Halloween. Stop scaring people about abortion.
0: And we take a closer look at ballot question three, which would change how retail liquor licenses work in Massachusetts. In sports, the Bruins win in a shootout, sunny in the 60s today. It's 7.01. Now the news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Barbara Klein. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russia has planted mines at a hydroelectric dam in southern Ukraine's Kherson region, which is now under Russian control. Zelensky says destruction of the plant would be a catastrophe, as heard here through a BBC interpreter.
3: According to our information, the aggregates and dam of the Kochovka hydroelectric power plant were mined by Russian terrorists. Now everyone in the world must act powerfully and quickly to prevent another Russian terrorist attack. Blowing up the dam would mean a large-scale disaster. Zelensky has told
2: EU leaders meeting in Brussels, Moscow's turning Ukraine's energy system itself into a battlefield. He also warns it could prompt more Ukrainians to flee to Western Europe. The UN Security Council is expected to vote today on a draft resolution that would impose sanctions on Haiti's most dominant gang leader, Jimmy Barbecue Cherazé. Linda Fasulo reports the U.S. and Mexico drafted the measure.
4: The draft resolution expresses grave
2: concern over the very high levels of gang violence and criminal activities in Haiti, including killings, kidnappings, trafficking in persons, rape and sexual slavery, and the measure would impose a global asset freeze, travel ban and arms embargo on Haiti's most powerful gang leader. The draft accuses him of directly contributing to the economic paralysis and humanitarian crisis in Haiti and engaging in acts that threaten peace and security and violate human rights. It's not yet clear how Russia and China will vote on the measure. Meanwhile, a draft resolution is being negotiated that would create a non-UN force to help end the violence in Haiti. For NPR News, Melinda Fasulo in New York. Police in Raleigh, North Carolina have released more information from a mass shooting last week. But as Jason DeBruin of member station WUNC reports, the biggest questions remain unanswered.
5: The
6: police report does not give any information as to how the 15-year-old shooter got the weapons. And the report adds that it still does not have a collective motive for the shooting that left five dead and two injured. Police responded to the scene at a quarter after five last Thursday afternoon. A manhunt ensued for hours that ended with the arrest of Austin Thompson nearly two miles from where the shooting began. He was found with a shotgun, a handgun, and a large hunting knife. He suffered a single gunshot wound and remains hospitalized. The first victim was Thompson's older brother, who was both stabbed and shot. The brother's parents released a statement saying they are, quote, overcome with grief for the innocent lives lost, end quote. For NPR News, I'm Jason DeBruin
2: in Raleigh. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston,
0: I'm Rupas Chenoy. There will be school today in Haverhill. The city and the teachers union reached a tentative contract agreement late last night to end the four-day teacher strike. Teachers walked off the job on Monday over issues including pay, school security, and staffing levels. Because the two sides didn't reach a deal until late last night, the city says there will not be bus service available today. The two major party candidates for Massachusetts governor met last night in their second and final televised debate. Republican Jeff Deal and Democrat Maura Healy discussed a variety of topics, including taxes. Deal says he'd be opposed to future tax hikes even if there's economic trouble, which he believes we're in now.
1: We're seeing home values drop. We're seeing, uh, again, major manufacturers leaving our state, Raytheon. No, my point is this. We need to make sure that we've got the money for the future, but I don't think the state is ever going to be in a position where we need to raise taxes over the time that I'll be in office as governor.
0: Healy would not make any kind of pledge about future tax increases. She instead focused on current conditions and urged the quick distribution of $3 billion in tax rebates required to go out under state law.
7: I've also called for the
8: acceptance of the proposed tax reforms by Governor Baker. I think they make a lot of sense and are uh, progressive and and directed at, again, seniors,
7: low-income, middle-income folks. Really, really important things.
0: Early voting in the election begins tomorrow. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says the city can't solve the crisis near the Mass and Cass area alone. She's asking the state to help provide more housing for those in the area who are experiencing homelessness and have substance use disorders. The mayor says Boston needs more state resources as more people from all over New England arrive looking for services.
9: To truly address the level of need and the depth of the opiate crisis confounded and complicated with homelessness and mental health, we need the state as a partner, as we do on on every issue.
0: Wu says the city is taking steps to clean the area of discarded syringes that have been found on streets and parks. The annual head of the Charles Regatta gets underway later this morning with boats racing along the Charles River in Boston. WB Dan Gussman has a
2: preview.
5: Organizers call this the first full-scale normal regatta, since before the pandemic began.
2: We have over 11,000 athletes. I think we're represented by over 30 countries in this year's regatta.
5: That's Amy Mayer, the head of the Charles Race Director. She'll also be taking part in several events and says there's nothing quite like this.
2: When the banks of the river are loaded with half a million people, hearing people cheer, and shout your name and clap their hands and it's like no other experience that I can possibly describe.
5: Mare adds her favorite place to watch the races is on one of the bridges over the river. The event goes through Sunday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan
0: Guzman. It's 707.
10: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by AE Events. Design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. And the Ad Club's Women's Leadership Forum, in person on October 24th. Hear from influential speakers and visionary women driving positive change in the world. Tickets at adclub.org.
0: The Bruins beat the Anaheim Ducks 2-1 to one in a shootout last night at the Garden. The Bees will host the Minnesota Wild tomorrow. And tonight, the Celtics will visit the Miami Heat. In your forecast, sunny today with a high in the mid 60s, clear overnight with lows in the 40s, sunny tomorrow and in the mid to upper 60s, mostly cloudy with a chance of showers on Sunday. It'll be around 60. Right now, it's 44 degrees in Boston at 708.
11: WBUR supporters include Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital markets solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com.
7: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Faldin.
12: And I'm Steve Inskeep. If you ever dreamed of being U.K. Prime Minister, now may be your chance.
7: Okay, the race may not be that wide open, but after Liz Truss lasted only six weeks, nobody knows who might take the job next. Half a dozen figures in the Conservative Party are seen as contenders, most have some kind of baggage or downside, and they include Boris Johnson, the prime minister who resigned amid scandal before trusted.
12: NPR's Frank Langfit has been watching events from London, and he joins us now. Frank, good morning. Good morning, Steve. Okay, so I, I'm thinking of that old lyric from The Who, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Could that be literally true? It could be literally true. I mean, I'm still
13: very skeptical, and a lot of people are here, too. I want to say that none of these candidates have actually announced, but there's already building public support. And the reason that I think this is actually worth considering is right now, Conservative Home. This is a good website that covers the the Conservative Party. It has numbers now showing That Rishi Sunak, he's the former chancellor, he's at 35, support from lawmakers in the parliamentary party, 19 for Johnson, 11 for Penny Mordant, who's the former defense secretary. So over the weekend, we're going to see more and more people coming out to decide who they want. These are conservative lawmakers in the parliament and see by Monday um, who's getting the most
12: support. Okay. So you have to take Boris Johnson seriously, given that the same members of parliament who pushed him out at least some of them seem willing to push him back in or pull him back in. What is the argument against Boris Johnson?
13: Well, I mean, how much time do you have? I mean, you got to remember, this is a guy that just last summer, we were talking about a lot. He he was basically tossed out by his own lawmakers because he lied about these government parties during the COVID lockdown, and people are really angry about that here. They recognize that in the past Boris Johnson had lied about a lot of things but this really really bothered them and uh what we found if you I was just looking at some old polls from just even a few months ago nationally 75 percent find him untrustworthy two-thirds found him incompetent and wanted him to resign so the idea which you would hear from some conservative lawmakers that he could actually because in the past he's won elections could help the Tory party, the Conservatives, out of the, the mess that they're in right now. Uh, for a lot of people, that just seems extremely unlikely.
12: Now, you did mention some other names earlier when you talked about that Conservative yeah. site that was tracking members of Parliament. Who were some of the other contenders? Yeah, so
13: I think the person to watch right now is definitely Rishi Sunak. He's at the top, and he came in second over the summer, lost to Liz Truss. He is the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, and that's important because the major problem that this country right now faces is economic and fiscal. And he has that background and his original budget was a much more fiscally conservative budget. Liz Truss went for unfunded tax cuts and, in after the market tax, she actually ended up having to adopt the policies of the man, Rishi Sunak, that she beat the other person, mm. Penny Morden, is very popular also among the Tory faithful out in the countryside, and uh, they're the ones who could ultimately have the the decision here
12: so when you talk about ultimately having the decision, uh, the Conservative Party in recent years has had this system where the members of parliament who would normally choose the prime minister don't make the final decision, they leave it to party hardliners out in the countryside. Are they really going to go through that again? They could. The only way that that would change is there's now about a hundred, you have to have
13: a hundred people in the parliament to support you. And if only one person makes that, then that person would become head of the party and prime minister of the United Kingdom.
12: So if someone is overwhelmingly supported among members of parliament, it goes no farther.
13: And there's certainly a lot of hope that that will happen because the last two prime ministers didn't work out too well.
12: NPR's Frank Langfitt, thanks so much. Great to talk, Steve. Now, how does this look to the U.K.'s close neighbor and ally? That is one of the questions we have for Catherine Colonna, the foreign minister of France who is visiting Washington, D.C. Welcome to the United States. Thank you. Good morning. Um, I just want to note for people, the UK's political and economic turmoil grows partly out of Brexit. They're trying to gl- grow their economy outside the EU while also facing you know, the global stresses that everyone faces. France, of course, remains inside the European Union, a leader of the European Union. Is your country's view being vindicated here?
4: Well, I can't really... Comment on internal uh, British politics, you know, but allow me to say that France, as a long lasting friend of the UK and of the British people, wishes them to regain political stability as fast as possible. I think we all need a stable and active neighbour and partner as the UK. And yes, Brexit has been a factor, it has been there now, it is done, so we must turn the page and be, be, you know, at work on both sides, building for a new relationship, a better one now than the one we've seen in the recent past.
12: Do you believe that your country is in a more uh, sustainable or stable position for being inside the European Union as you face global problems like the war in Ukraine, the economic effects there, inflation and so forth?
4: We certainly are in a you know a similar situation regarding the war in Ukraine, but with a, a stability in our economy and in our internal politics that the... Uh, UK doesn't currently enjoy. That's why we want to see it back as an active and uh, close partner.
12: Now, I want to note that you're preparing, if I'm not mistaken, for a visit to the United States by your president, President Biden. I'm sure when they talk, a central issue is going to be the war in Ukraine. Do your governments still fully agree on the strategy as we head into winter now?
4: I. Absolutely think we do. We absolutely align what we must do and, and, and must keep doing in order to sustain Ukraine and um, be with them as long as uh, needed. What, what we're seeing is that things are not going for Russia exactly as uh, the Kremlin has expected, neither on the military front or on the economic front, because the sanctions are hitting. And you know, just like uh, I do, that the, the internal front, mobilization is not popular, and that's another statement. So our strategy is to keep supporting Ukraine and its people, to keep isolating uh, Russia, the diplomatic front, and to uh, go on and help uh, as much as we can by keeping on our economic, diplomatic, humanitarian, and military support. And allow me to remind everyone that the EU is welcoming 10 million Ukrainian refugees. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we we do our part, we have the same goal, and we act together. Our unity is absolutely key, and we align with that. The president will come in uh, December, this coming December, for a state visit. It will be an opportunity to talk about Ukraine, obviously, and other international issues, but also an opportunity to stress uh, the vitality of the bilateral relation and continue sure. acting together on the world scene how
12: much will europeans suffer this winter from the loss of russian gas and oil
4: well there's a price we uh, all pay for, for for that war chosen by uh, russia because the economy has been affected inflation is on the right, and Ener- energy prices especially for European um, people, have been, have been really increasing. But I can assure you that this is the cost Europeans are ready to pay to defend the principles and the values we collectively rely on and cherish. And you don't defend, see a loss of political support,
12: States. because I assume that's what the Russians would count on as a loss of political support for the war as people's energy prices go up.
4: The political support has been uh, steady and and strong and remains so. Of course, it is our responsibility to make the people understand what is at stake, what uh, we must do and keep doing, and um, to also, with our allies and partners, make sure that the Kremlin cannot bet on that and that you know fatigue, uh, quote unquote, or on some difficulties with the economy of uh, you know either the U.S. Or Europe, so combination of uh, useful conversations between us and strength and forward-looking for Ukraine is what we're looking for. I'd like to
12: note that we're in the middle of election season in the United States. Republicans have a good chance to make gains in Congress or even capture control of one or both houses of Congress, as I'm sure you know very well. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, who could be the new House Speaker if Republicans do well, has said there will not be a blank che- check for aid to Ukraine. Uh, And some of his lawmakers have actually voted against it in recent months. Now, I realize this is a delicate question because you don't want to comment on U.S. politics. But there is this question of keeping together the alliance between different countries that are supporting Ukraine. How would you answer skeptics of Ukraine aid here in the United States? Well, certainly I cannot comment
4: uh, neither the British Politics or the US politics? Absolutely not. But first of all, I think it's a bipartisan issue more than you um, just said. Uh, Right now, you know, this is a season for the election, but beyond the election, I'm quite um, convinced that this is a bipartisan issue. What we would say is is what we all say as governments. Uh, This is our collective system. Uh, that is at stake, you know, the, the, the pillars of the international order, are principles and values, are democratic countries. So we are here to defend them because it is our interest to defend them. And in order to defend them, we have to be a united, be strong and c ready to choose the best solution for that, including ready to pay some economic cost for it.
12: Are you saying that you feel that this will remain a bipartisan issue in the United States, even if Republicans, some of whom have taken a different approach to this, gain power?
4: I'm, I'm convinced it is a bipartisan issue because it is in the interest, in the strong and deep interest of our nations. Foreign Minister, it's a
12: pleasure talking with you. Thank you and enjoy the rest of your visit to the United States.
4: Thank you so much. Thanks.
12: Catherine Colonna is the foreign minister of France. She is preparing for a visit to the United States later this year by Emmanuel Macron. This is NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa Chinoy. Coming up on War's Morning Edition, the Massachusetts candidates for governor met in their final debate last night. Maura Healy and Jeff Deal clashed over energy policy, the economy, and abortion, as well as former President Donald Trump. And what you need to know about question three on your ballot, it would change some of the state's liquor licensing laws. It's 720. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at wbur.org cars.
14: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments that T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. And Bass, Barry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com.
8: The U.S. dollar is soaring against other currencies, adding to fears of a global financial meltdown. When that happened in 1985, governments took action.
15: So they got together the finance ministers of the world and came to this deal where they would all take action to bring the dollar down.
8: Could that happen today? I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. We'll have
0: clear skies at a high near 64 today. Tonight it drops to a low around 48. Tomorrow sunny again and slightly warmer with a high near 68. Mostly cloudy on Sunday with a high near 62 and a good chance of rain in the afternoon. It's 44 degrees in Boston at 721.
9: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Orion Pictures presenting Till, based on the true story of Mamie Till Mobley's fight for justice for her son, Emmett Till, starring Danielle Dedweiler, now playing in select theaters everywhere October 28th. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios, Workday the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com. This is NPR.
0: This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Chenoy. In their second and final debate last night, the two major party candidates for governor of Massachusetts picked up where they left off last week. In a debate sponsored by WBUR, WCVB, and the Boston Globe, Democrat Maura Healey and Republican Jeff Deal sparred over the economy, abortion rights, and former President Trump. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports.
16: As she did a week ago, Healy quickly tried to tie Deal to former President Trump. Asked if they would accept the results of the November 8th election, Healy said she would, and then attacked Deal for pushing Trump's big lie
2: that he won in 2020. Those are really dangerous statements in this time. Those are the kinds of statements that incited the violence, the attack on the United States Capitol, that resulted in injury and death to police officers. For his part, Deal
16: said he would also accept the results of the November election, but as a supporter of Trump, Deal has pushed the former president's false claims that the 2020 election was rigged. And last
1: night, he said it's
16: appropriate to continue to raise questions about possible irregularities.
1: It's OK to say that things like mail-in balloting in certain states may have been handled badly. I ultimately understand that Joe Biden was certified and became our president.
16: Deal presented himself as a fiscal conservative. As he did a week ago, he attacked Healy for being aligned with President Joe Biden and policies that he says have produced high taxes, soaring gas prices, more government control and less individual freedom. Healy pushed back and said her top priorities are to make housing and child care more affordable, to push for tax cuts and money from Washington to help with rising energy costs. Healy also pledged to protect abortion rights in Massachusetts and attack deal as out of step with most voters on the issue. My opponent celebrated when Roe was
7: overturned. He celebrated it. He thinks it's a good decision and a good idea. He wants to defund Planned Parenthood. He said he wants to jail doctors who provide abortion care.
16: For his part, Deal opposes abortion, but says as governor he would respect the Roe Act, the Massachusetts law that protects abortion rights.
1: There is no way I'm changing that law. So to try to scare people, I know it's Halloween. Stop scaring people about abortion. It doesn't make any sense.
16: Last night's debate was Deal's last and best opportunity to gain ground on Healey in an election in which she's heavily favored. Democrats outnumber Republicans in Massachusetts by a wide margin, and a recent Boston Globe-Suffolk University poll found Deal trailing by 23 points. Voters are already casting ballots by mail, and early voting in Massachusetts begins tomorrow. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks.
0: this election season, voters across Massachusetts are weighing in on a ballot question with big implications for alcohol sellers. WBUR's Vanessa Ocevilio is here to explain who's backing the measure and what a yes or no vote on question three means. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Rupa. So am I right that this ballot question is about increasing the number of alcohol licenses a company can hold, or is it more complicated than that?
17: Yeah, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So you may not realize it, but your favorite supermarket or package store must have a license to sell beer and wine. And if they want to sell liquor, like vodka or tequila, they need a different license for that, too. Um, Today, retailers aren't allowed to keep more than nine alcohol licenses of any type. Question three on the Massachusetts ballot would double that cap to 18. Hmm. Um, That said, the measure would reduce how many hard liquor licenses a business can get from nine down to seven.
0: Okay. So who is backing this measure and why?
17: The Massachusetts Package Store Association is in support of this proposal. They say it's a compromise solution of sorts. Uh, Some small liquor stores became alarmed when the convenience store chain Cumberland Farms made an attempt to get rid of the cap on alcohol licenses. Uh, This ballot question keeps the license cap, but loosens it a bit. And as a nod to grocery stores, it mostly expands beer and wine licenses. They most want to sell those products, not hard liquor. The group's executive director, Rob Millian, says the cap is one of the strongest features of Massachusetts alcohol laws
18: if we can get a few years of stabilization as a result of voters voting yes on question three, then it's a win for local businesses. It's a win for the large corporations because they're going to get more licenses. It's a win for the consumer because public safety is part of question three.
0: And what about people on the other side of this ballot question? It sounds like there wasn't a lot of opposition until recently. That's right. The No on 3
17: campaign received its first big influx of cash earlier this month from the liquor store chain Total Wine. It has donated more than $2 million and has seven locations in the state. Oh, interesting. Why did it get so involved? Yeah, Total Wine leadership says it's fighting the ballot measure because a reduction in liquor licenses stifles competition and they say less competition harms the customer. Other opponents, like the Retailers Association of Massachusetts, uh, say they reject the ballot question because they want license caps to go away. Um, Ryan Kearney is the group's general counsel.
19: This proposal is only geared towards protecting those smaller businesses and the larger businesses don't necessarily have the opportunity to compete in a fair and open market.
0: And are there any other implications to question
17: three that we should know about? Yeah. So another key part of question three is that it could hike fines stores face when they break the law. Right now, if a store sells someone under 21 alcohol and gets caught, the store can be fined up to 50% of its alcohol sales. Few stores sell just alcohol though, and the ballot question would set fines to capture 50% of all sales of all goods. It would also ban the sale of alcohol in self-checkout lines. And if the question passes, stores could start accepting out-of-state IDs to check someone is old enough to buy their booze. And is there
0: opposition to that aspect of question three?
17: Most businesses appear to be okay with no alcohol sales in the self-checkout line. Um, But public health advocates I spoke to are concerned that the rule change around out-of-state IDs could lead to more underage people getting fake IDs to buy alcohol.
0: Well, I guess we'll find out what voters think of this pretty soon. Early in-person voting begins tomorrow and lasts for two weeks. So that's coming up really quick. Thank you for breaking this down for us, Vanessa. Thank you, Rupa. If you want more info about the Massachusetts ballot initiatives and how to vote in this election, go to WPUR.org slash VoterGuide.
14: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wheeler School, where learning is an adventure from lower school neuroscience to upper school arts. Open house tomorrow for K-12, wheelerschool.org. And the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers
20: await. Learn more today at bso.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Former Trump advisor Steve Bannon will be sentenced in Washington, D.C. today. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports Bannon was convicted of two counts of criminal contempt of Congress after he defied a subpoena from the House panel investigating the January 6th insurrection.
21: Prosecutors say Steve Bannon pursued a, quote, bad faith strategy of defiance and contempt. They want him to serve the maximum under the guidelines that would be six months in jail and a fine of $200,000. Justice wants this judge to send a message to others who
20: fail to comply with Congress that there's going to be a price to pay for that. That's NPR's Carrie Johnson reporting. Iran has issued a travel warning for Ukraine, saying that Iranians should not travel to the country. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports the government is citing the escalation of military clashes and increased insecurity in Ukraine.
1: Iranian state media are citing a statement from the foreign ministry which says in part, quote, all Iranians are strongly advised to refrain from traveling to Ukraine. It also calls on any Iranians living there to, quote, leave the country for their own safety. Uh, The warning comes amid reports that Iran supplied combat drones to Russia for use in Ukraine.
20: NPR's Peter Kenyon reporting. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoi. School is back
0: in session in Haverhill today. That comes after a four-day teacher strike. The Haverhill Education Association and the Haverhill School Committee reached a tentative agreement late last night. School officials say there won't be bus service today and students unable to attend class will be excused. The incoming president of MIT says she's committed to building a diverse and inclusive community at the school. Sally Kornbluth says boosting diversity is critical to advancing MIT's culture of innovation and inquiry. More from WBUR's Vanessa Ochovillo.
17: Kornbluth steps into her new role in January, but she's already looking ahead to how to ensure MIT remains diverse should the U.S. Supreme Court decide to overturn the use of race in college admissions this term.
2: Obviously, MIT will always follow the law, but it's going to be critical to think about ways, regardless of what comes out
14: of a court decision, to maintain a diverse and vibrant environment.
17: She plans to lean into recruitment to first-generation students, who now make up one in five students on campus. Yesterday, Kornbluth was named MIT's 18th president, and she is only the second woman to hold the role. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Vanessa Ocheviglio.
0: The rain we've had in the last few weeks is finally making a dent in the region's drought. For the first time since the beginning of July, the entire state is not listed as abnormally dry by the U.S. Drought Monitor. Hydrologist David Bout is a professor at UMass Amherst. He says the region is still below where it should be for rainfall, but it's in better shape than this summer thanks to recent rain.
22: So it's given us kind of a respite from the precipitation deficit and allow us to start to refill surface water reservoirs and the groundwater systems that we depend on for our water supplies.
0: The worst drought conditions in the state are in the North Shore and Cape Ann. Thinking about going to Salem for an early Halloween celebration this weekend? You're not alone. The city says it's seeing record crowds this October. So far, half a million people have visited downtown Salem this month. That's a 15% jump from the same time last year. The MBTA has increased commuter rail service so people don't have to drive. It's 734 in sports, the Bruins' Taylor Hall scored in regulation and was the only player to score in a shootout last night against the Ducks. Boston topped Anaheim 2-1 to at the Garden. The Bees will host the Minnesota Wild tomorrow. Tonight, the Celtics are on the road against the Miami Heat. And in your forecast, sunny and in the mid-60s today, clear and upper 40s tonight. Tomorrow, sunny again. And in the upper 60s. Sunday cloudy and low 60s with a good chance of rain that may last into Monday morning. It's 44 degrees in Boston.
9: Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter and Gamble Maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com.
7: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden.
12: And I'm Steve Inskeep. The housing market is in trouble.
7: The number of sales in September is down 24% from
12: a year ago to the lowest level in a decade. Prices are falling a bit, too. NPR's Chris Arnold joins us now to talk about whether the market could get even worse. Hey there, Chris.
15: Hey, Steve. I think it's obvious to most people, but talk us through what's happening to the market. Well, as you probably would have guessed, this is everything to do with interest rates. I mean, they've gone from 3% at the start of the year to now up above 7%. I mean, that is a huge jump for something as expensive as a house. It adds $1,000 a month about to the monthly payment for a typical house. And that's making people rethink if they can afford to buy a home. You know, and a lot of families with kids are struggling with this right now. I talked to Heather Gant. She used to be a Navy diesel mechanic. Her husband's an officer in the Navy and he's away on a ship now. And they've agreed to buy a new home that's almost built in Virginia.
20: He said last night that he hasn't been sleeping. Thinking about it, this keeps me up every night. And then he just said, we're so
23: screwed and so then I said, well, then let's just back out.
15: Actually, despite all of the angst, they, they are going to buy the place. But a lot of buyers just really can't afford it. And this affects sellers, too. You know, if you've got a mortgage at 3% or less on your current house, you know, it's you don't really want to go buy another house and pay 7% on a mortgage. So that's keeping homes off the market. So both ways, this is this is slowing things down.
12: Chris, even before this happened, the housing market seemed dysfunctional and choked. There weren't enough houses going on the market. Prices were going through the roof. So where does it head now?
15: It depends on what parts of that you look at. I mean, there are some ominous signs that sales have fallen for eight straight months now, eight months in a row, fewer homes sold than the month before. That does not happen very often. I talked to Lawrence Yoon about this. He's the chief economist for the National Association of Realtors.
24: The last time we saw this is back in 2007, essentially a few months right before the great housing market crash that occurred.
15: Now, of course, there are some differences. There's some very big differences. I mean, back then, millions of people had these subprime mortgages that were just these crazy terms where the payments went so high, no one could afford them. That led to a wave of foreclosures. And so we had this glut of homes for sale, way too many homes. Today, it's the opposite. People have fixed rate, safe mortgages that they can afford, and we have a housing shortage. Here's Lawrence Yoon.
24: We had over 4 million homes available for sale back in the housing market crash of 2008, 2009. 4 million. Today, we are just at a 1 million level, so still very tight inventory condition.
12: Oh, wait a minute. The dysfunctional issue that I mentioned before, the shortage of homes for sale might actually save the market?
15: Exactly. Uh, You know, nationally, most economists think, okay, prices might fall a bit. Some say 10 percent from the top peak, maybe a little more, but not a crash. And it's actually amazing. I mean, homes are selling on average in just 19 days. That's really fast. So even with higher rates and fewer sales, there still just aren't enough homes and and they're selling quickly. What are you hearing from realtors? I checked back in with a realtor we've been talking to during the really frenzied market of the past couple of years. Her name's Gabriella Raymander, and she's in St. Petersburg, Florida.
2: Now we're seeing a normalcy again. Yes, there are open houses. People are actually going. They're looking at it. The buyers have definitely more of a chance to get a property.
15: And uh, if you can afford these rates, you can even bid a little under the asking price now, Steve.
12: Chris, thanks so much. Thank you. His reporting is always full price. NPR's Chris Arnold.
7: Secretary of State Antony Blinken says China is speeding up its plans to seize Taiwan. His remarks come as China's Party Congress prepares to give Xi Jinping a third term in power. As Emily Feng reports from Taiwan, the growing tensions between the US and
25: China will be one of Xi's biggest challenges. In previous years, Party Congresses took a hopeful tone when China's economy and global status were rising. Not so much this year. Xi Jinping is warning of turbulent times ahead. First up, China's conducted live-fire military drills all around Taiwan in August. But rather than intimidating the Taiwanese, Chinese aggression pushed the Taiwanese into supporting more anti-China policies. Taiwanese lawmaker Freddie Lim says the island is now preparing for the
22: worst. The war in
26: Ukraine gave us initial motivation, and then with the global situation, the world is asking Taiwan, are we prepared for war? Because we cannot predict the behavior of an autocrat.
25: And that autocrat is Xi Jinping. And at the same time, there is a rivalry between the U.S. and China, where the two countries see each other's ambitions as fundamentally opposed. William Klein used to be a senior U.S. diplomat posted in Beijing until last year. He's now a partner at consulting firm FGS Global.
22: I saw
16: a a growing concern from a Chinese perspective that the United States truly had the intention to disrupt um, China's modernization aspirations, to contain China, even under the Trump administration, um, to challenge the legitimacy of Communist Party rule in China.
25: This month, the U.S. imposed sweeping export bans on China, preventing it from obtaining any U.S. technology that could help it make or design the most advanced semiconductor chips, kneecapping one of the country's key technological areas. Mike Mazar, a political analyst at think tank RAND, says these export bans are concrete confirmation the U.S. is trying to contain China's rise.
3: It's just sort of an open ended statement that we perceive you as so dangerous that we are not going to conspire in in allowing you to reach to to become one of the leading world leading semiconductor manufacturers.
25: Meanwhile, at the party congress, Xi Jinping gave a speech where he was resolutely unapologetic about the path his country is pursuing, which appears to show that China won't change its behavior despite U.S. pressure. These hardening attitudes indicate there are few off ramps to defuse U.S.-China tension.
27: I don't see the kind of end game
25: That's Jessica Chen-Weiss, a political science professor at Cornell University and former senior policy advisor to the U.S. State Department. Right now,
27: we have a lot of efforts underway to slow China down. But it's not clear under what conditions. is, Is there anything that China could do differently? Meaning,
25: by punishing China for what it's done wrong, the U.S. hasn't given China an idea of what it could do right to better the relationship. Here's Robert Daly, China director at U.S. think tank The Wilson Center.
22: No one has articulated a framework that
11: seems feasible in which a powerful, prosperous United States can work constructively with a powerful, prosperous China that is still led by the Chinese Communist Party.
25: And despite all its beef with China, the U.S. is losing on-the-ground expertise in the country, partly because China's closed borders have stopped many Americans from traveling there.
11: We've lost the more humanistic lens, and we're seeing China almost entirely through a security lens instead.
25: And when countries don't understand one another, Daily says, they tend to make the worst-case assumptions. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei, Taiwan.
7: This is NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa Chenoy in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, NPR's Life Kit team presents its guide to professional networking. And in our next hour, pediatric transgender care clinics are under attack from conservative activists who say they're trying to protect kids. In your forecast clear skies in mid-60s today. We fall into the 40s tonight, then sunny tomorrow, and in the mid to upper 60s. Right now it's 45 degrees in Boston at 743.
10: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University's Executive Ph.D. in Business, a part-time doctoral program for professionals who want data-driven research skills to solve today's business challenges.
0: Now, in business news, Cisco drivers in Plimpton are ending their strike after nearly three weeks. The workers overwhelmingly voted to approve a new five-year contract yesterday. The deal includes pay raises and improvements to workers' health and retirement plans. It does not include renewal of a pension plan. The union representing the drivers says they'll, work, they'll return to work on Sunday. Boston-based VMS Software is mourning the death of its CEO. The company says 44-year-old Kevin Shaw was killed last week after he was hit by a driver in Acton. Vice President David Sweeney will serve as the company's acting CEO. Boston-based Propeller Ventures plans to invest $100 million in startups that will help solve the climate crisis. The tech fund says it's partnering with Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution to identify companies to support. Propeller is led by Brian Halligan, the co-founder of HubSpot. It's 744.
11: Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. wealth
7: It's Morning Edition from
12: NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. You know that old saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know. That's the idea behind professional networking, a task that makes a lot of people cringe. So how do you learn to schmooze? Here's Andy Tegel of NPR's Life Kit.
24: Robbie Samuels says networking is like giving people rides to the airport. Stay with me. Samuels is a Philadelphia-based virtual design event consultant and a recognized networking expert by the likes of Forbes and the Harvard Business Review. He says the key to networking is to approach it not with that familiar mindset of what you need, but rather what you can offer.
27: If you become known as a person who's always giving rides to the airport, the day you need one, you're going to get a ride. It's like, I want to be seen as that giver. And I'm most likely to want to give to others who give as well. That's how I'm thinking about networking is like really broadening the the pot of what we all can tap into.
24: Giving begets giving. And like your monthly insurance premium, Samuel says investing a little time into your professional network on a regular basis can ensure you're covered when you need it the most. Simply put, networking is relationship building.
27: Relationships are the answer to any business or life challenge. Anytime we need something, I don't think, who am I going to pay? I think, who do I know that would know something about this?
24: We put a lot of pressure on our career-based connections. But think about the ease with which you grow the other relationships in your life. Asking after your neighbor's banana nut bread recipe, attending your nephew's school play, or sending that check-in text to make sure your girlfriend got home okay. Professional networks are built the same way. Just time and care.
27: Repeat exposure is what builds the relationship.
24: Okay, but how do you even build a network to begin with? First, follow your interests.
27: Looking for organizations that host weekly and monthly activities that attract the kind of people you enjoy being around.
24: When you found that posse and you're angling to go to your first mixer, make sure you have goals in mind first. Are you looking for a job right this second or do you just wanna know what potential is out there for the future? Could you use a collaborator on your new project?
27: The effort up front before you leave the house of doing that kind of planning and strategy work is what will make it more successful.
24: Then when you get there, resist the urge to just collect as many business cards as you can.
27: It's not about volume. It's not about extrovert versus introvert. It's about being thoughtful about what you're trying to achieve in that moment.
24: And don't forget to be authentic in your approach.
27: Because if they hire you and you're playing acting as somebody else, it's not gonna be the job for you.
24: Samuel's mantra for networking success is to show up and add value in every space you enter whether you're brand new to the job market or the seniorist of senior supervisors.
27: You get to think really broadly about what that looks like. One of my favorite things to do online to stand out is to be a person who shares resources in the chat. If a speaker mentions a book or a website or a TEDx, I will go and find the link and put a thoughtful comment into chat with the name of the book and the link to the book. Super simple and a great way to offer value and sort of rise up from the crowd in a really nice way.
24: And this practice of openness and generosity can be applied in lots of social situations, says Samuels, not just professional spaces.
27: So if you're at the DMV and you had an interesting conversation with someone while you were sitting there for three hours, that's networking.
24: The DMV, really?
27: Why not? You know, like if you mind your own business all the time and have blinders on, you'll miss opportunities when they are right in front of you.
24: For NPR's Life Kit, I'm Andy Tagle.
12: This is NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. There's another hour coming up here on WBWAR's Morning Edition. And later today at 11 is Radio Boston. And Anna Deering is here to tell us what they've got for us today. You know, it was really lovely to see Deb Becker here yesterday, but I can't, I can't. it's just not the same. I'm, I'm so glad I'm able to say happy Friday to you, <laughs> TC you.
21: Happy Friday to you, too. I was digging that vibe just there in that music, group. Mm-hmm. One of the things we're going to do on the show today is our latest hidden history. Turns out... There's a guy, uh, Bill Hanley, Medford completely changed the way sound is done at big concerts, festivals, conventions. Like, there was a before that I think most of us never even knew existed, and it was a pretty lousy sound before. So we have him on today. It is fascinating. Everything from LBJ to the Beatles, right, he affected. Um, and I think it's going to be a fascinating conversation. That sounds
0: fascinating. And you've got uh, the energy for it after last night?
21: Yes, yes, I'm surprised, frankly. But yep, there was a debate last night, and that's the other thing we'll do, Adrian Walker of the Globe. Our
0: own Anthony Brooks will join us, and we'll break down how it went last night. Sounds great. Have a good time. Thank Happy you. Friday. Everybody. Happy <laughs> Friday. Too Thank you. That's Radio Boston today at 11 and 3.
9: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from BetterHelp, Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public.
16: I'm Anthony Brooks, former President Barack Obama, President Joe Biden, and Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are campaigning ahead of next month's midterm elections as some polls show Republicans gaining momentum in their campaign to retake control of Congress. It's all part of our Politics Roundtable, next time on Here and Now.
6: Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
18: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
7: I'm Layla Falded.
18: And I'm A. Martinez. Few people shaped the music of the 1990s quite like Babyface. As a writer, producer, and musician, his influence was everywhere. And if you're in your 20s, it's entirely possible that you were made with a Babyface song playing in the background. That's Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey, TLC, Madonna, and Boys to Men, a tiny sampling of Babyface hits. Now he's back with a new album of collaborations with up and coming women. It's called Girls Night Out. That is the voice of Ella May, a song called Keeps On Fallen. Babyface says he and his collaborators found inspiration on a tight deadline.
28: We had one day to write the song and record it. So it was all in that same time period. So we had a day to get to know each other, talk about life and talk about um, what you wanna sing about, what's going on in your life, what's something that we could write about. And uh, then we figure that out in a couple hours and then we start writing and uh, try to record the song.
18: That sounds like a lot of pressure,
28: one day. Ultimately, I guess in a sense it was. It wasn't stated that we only got a day. It was just kind of like, let's get in. And then we kind of just created there on the spot. I wanted to make sure that I was not staying in the same time period where my writing would be. I wanted to also learn from them as well as being able to grow myself in terms of how they flow, the melodies, the lyrics, how they are different today than they were when I was just writing myself. So the whole process was a definitely a collaboration. and. It was kind of mixing old world with new world, so to say.
18: But musically, though, I mean, you didn't want to age it. So is that something that you were worried about, like that maybe somehow it would sound like from a different era when you're working with younger talent?
28: A lot of the artists came in, there a little worried about that. They Mm -hmm. definitely wanted to work, but I think they were also a little surprised that it wasn't older sounding. Even when I sung on the records, I made sure that I wasn't sounding as 90s.
18: Nothing wrong with the 90s baby face nothing wrong with the 90s
28: The 90s
29: is great in the 90s but don't put the 90s in today
18: Were any of the artists though deferential to you at first maybe considering your resume
28: Well, they were, uh, most of them were nervous. And we had to work through that to get past the whole, I'm always like, why are you nervous? I'm just a regular ass dude. And you know, that's not true, right? You know, (laughs) you know why they're nervous. Well, but I get outside the music. I'm regular as hell. So, and we just got to get past that point. So where we can kind of like talk and have fun. And then you can relax and really get to it. Because if you're doing it, on a whole basis of like, oh no, I don't know if I can say this. I don't know if I can say I don't like something. The whole thing I said, if you don't like something, then I'm fine with it. I have absolutely no ego. You know, if it sucks, it sucks. And I write sucky things all the time. So let's uh, let's just kind of get through it because that's the only way you can kind of get it done.
18: So on a song like Seamless, the one you did with Kalani, how did you go about it with her on that one?
28: We were initially going for a kind of a love song, like a wedding song. And we started working with it, and as we were doing it, then she was like, oh, no, this is corny as hell. Let's get out of this. And then we had a whole different kind of feel.
0: I was trying to make it work, trying to make this out a home. If I don't need
8: anybody, girl, I ain't everybody, girl. You know my body, how come i my body? We supposed to be seamless, but you love showing off
2: weakness. Getting off that for no reason, turning up
18: You know, in the past, you've worked with uh, Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey, Mary J. Blige. Do you notice a change in how women are treated in the industry? Because, you know, the music business has, in a lot of ways, excluded women from key roles for a very, very long time. Is that changing, you think?
28: Well, I think that there's far more independence. There's far more um, confidence in who they are and what they want to say and and how they want to say it. Whereas before, you were just the producer and they come in and they just say, "Okay, what do you want me to do? It's a far different world today as it relates to these young girls. It's a welcome uh, independence that I like, you know. It helps guide you a little bit more in terms of what to actually say and and how to say it.
18: There was a time when it seemed like you were associated with just about every big pop record there was. And it was wild to me that it seemed like everybody wanted to have the babyface sound. How did you manage that? Did you ever just get burned out and say they're like, there's no more juice left to squeeze in in this musical brain of mine?
28: I don't know that I ever thought of it that way. I just kind of like was, I missed out on a lot of that. I didn't pay attention to it so much. I woke up one day and like, wow, I did all that.
18: <laughs> it really just creeped up on you? Like, oh my gosh, like, this is what I did?
28: For the longest time, I didn't even know that Pill was a pop record. Uh, I thought it was just R&B. I think it was about a couple of months ago I saw that, oh, it was top 10.
18: Wait, a couple of months ago?
28: Yeah, I wasn't even thinking it. I was always surprised when I would perform. Let's say there's a lot more uh, white people in that crowd, and I'm seeing them sing Whippa-Pill. I'm like, <laughs> how do y'all know this? <laughs>
2: know a kind of on me, yeah.
18: So one of the great things I, I love about this album, Girls' Night Out, is that There's something for someone that's 20, and there's something for someone like me who's now above 50. Yeah, I think that ultimately, this whole project was really
28: about me presenting the new girls, the young girls that I think are great, and I think have flavor, and I think will be important in the future. Um, It's a showcase uh, that shines on these artists and their artistry, and I'm putting my artistry with them to help
18: make a statement.
8: What do I do? What do I do?
18: What do I do? That's 12-time Grammy winner Babyface. His new album is called Girls' Night Out. Babyface, thanks a lot. Thank you. Appreciate it. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by BJ Liederman. I'm Martinez. I'm Leila
29: Faldin,
14: and I'm Steve Inskeep. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dublin School, Southern New Hampshire Boarding and Day School, rooted in curiosity, kindness, and fun, grades 9 through 12. Open house November 6th, dublinschool.org. And Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at sullivantire.com.
3: I'm all things considered executive producer Jonathan Kane and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster listen anytime with our app or at wbur.org wbur Boston's NPR news station
0: a new scramble for leadership of the UK is expected to play out today in a race to replace Liz Truss as Prime Minister. It's Friday, October 21st. This is WBR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Chanoy. Coming up, former Trump White House advisor Steve Bannon may be sentenced to up to six months in jail today for failing to respond to the house committee investigating the january 6 attack also this hour we follow boston-based lawyers in el paso texas and juarez mexico helping migrants who thought they'd be able to enter the u.s but are finding their situations complicated by a new biden administration policy and some ukrainians watching the upcoming u.s midterm elections say they're worried republicans will gain power
5: when we see Fox News commentators from our perspective promote isolationist position, that looks like support for Russia.
0: Sunny in the 60s today. It's 8.01. Now the news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Barbara Klein. President Biden is due to deliver remarks today on his administration's plan to forgive billions of dollars in student loan debt. He'll give the speech at the historically black Delaware State University. NPR's Barbara Sprunt has more. The speech comes on the heels of the launch of a program to cancel some student debt.
20: The plan will cancel up to $10,000 in debt for those earning less than $125,000 dollars per year and up to $20,000 for those who receive Pell Grants while in school. The program went live earlier this week. The administration estimates more than 40 million people will be eligible for relief. His speech follows a day in Pennsylvania where Biden promoted his administration's infrastructure law and helped raise money for Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, who's facing off against celebrity TV doctor Mehmet Oz
2: in a very tight Senate race. Barbara and NPR News, The White House. In Britain, potential candidates for prime minister have until Monday afternoon to gather support from parliamentary colleagues after Liz Truss resigned yesterday. Willem Marks reports the hopefuls will need more than 100 backers to reach the nomination threshold.
22: None of Truss's potential successors have confirmed whether they'll stand in the contest to replace her next week as both head of the Conservative Party and prime minister. Leading candidates include former finance minister Rishi Sunak, whom Truss beat in a similar contest this summer, as well as former defence minister Penny Mordaunt. Though scandal-hit former premier Boris Johnson remains a possible contender.
2: Villa Mark's reporting: the Environmental Protection Agency is opening a civil rights investigation into chronic problems with the water system in Jackson, Mississippi. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports the probe will center on whether state agencies discriminated against the capital city's majority black population in allocating federal funds to local water systems. The investigation comes after the NAACP filed a discrimination complaint with EPA alleging that Mississippi state government engaged in a decades-long pattern of refusing to fund improvements to Jackson's water treatment system. problems reached a crisis point this summer that left residents without clean drinking water for more than two months and no water pressure at all for a week. The NAACP called the federal civil rights probe a significant first step in holding the state accountable for its role in exacerbating the water crisis. Republican Governor Tate Reeves blamed what he called the quote absolute and total incompetence of Jackson's Democratic mayor. Debbie Elliott, NPR News. Ahead of the opening on Wall Street, stock futures are down slightly. This is NPR.
0: From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. School is resuming this morning in Haverhill. The city and the teachers union reached a tentative contract agreement late last night to end the four-day teacher strike. Haverhill School Committee member Scott Wood says the deal is a three-year contract.
13: I think at the end of the day, it's a contract. That places value on our teachers and I think will help with the uh, retention of our teaching staff. But at the same time, it certainly uh, balanced the
3: financial constraints of the taxpayers of the city of Haverhill.
0: Wood says the agreement also stipulates the teachers union is responsible for paying extra costs incurred by the strike, including police details and extra legal fees. The tentative agreement still needs final approval from teachers. With Election Day approaching, Democrat Maura Healy and Republican Jeff Deal met last night in their second and final debate. WBR's Anthony Brooks reports the two candidates for governor picked up where they left off in last week's debate.
16: Healy and Deal sparred over the economy, energy prices, and abortion rights. As she did in their first debate, Healy wasted no time attacking Deal for pushing former President Trump's bogus claim that he won the 2020 election. Those are the kinds of statements that incited the violence, the attack on the United States Capitol. Deal acknowledged that Joe Biden was certified as president, but said it's appropriate to raise questions about possible election irregularities.
1: It's okay to say that things like mail-in balloting in certain states may have been handled badly.
16: Last night's debate may have been Deal's last and best chance to gain ground on Healy in an election in which she's heavily favored. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks.
0: New England lawmakers are calling on President Biden to release extra heating oil from the region's stockpile. They say the war in Ukraine and the pandemic have driven up the cost of oil and cut supply. By law, President Biden can release oil in the regional reserve if there is a supply shortage. The president authorized the release of 15 million barrels of oil from the national reserve earlier this week. Home construction projects in the U.S. are likely to slow down, but the impact could be muted in the Boston area. That's according to a new analysis from the Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies. WBR's Yasmin Ammer reports.
25: Researchers expect nationwide spending on home remodeling to decrease by around 60 percent by mid-2023. But the slowdown in greater Boston is likely to be less dramatic. One reason? The housing stock is older, and so construction projects tend to be more urgent. Abby Will is a housing
23: researcher at Harvard.
3: Resisting home sales are slowing. Obviously, there's a lot of talk of
25: recession.
2: And certainly, I think what the slowdown could also be picking up on is that homeowners feeling a little bit more reserved about the future or just uncertain about the future.
25: In the past couple of years, the growth rate for spending on home renovations has been staggering in some cases rising more than three times the rate for a typical year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yaspin Ammer. It's 8.07.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, catering diplomatic receptions, corporate celebrations, milestone events, and public galas in Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Artisanal cuisine and a focus on logistics. Uncommonfeasts.com. Gather around. Let's feast.
0: The Bruins topped the Anaheim Docks 2-1 to last night in a shootout. The Bees will play again tomorrow when they host the Minnesota Wild. Tonight, the Celtics will be in Miami to take on the heat. Sunny today with a high in the mid-60s. Clear overnight with lows in the 40s. Sunny tomorrow and in the mid-to-upper 60s. Mostly cloudy with a chance for showers on Sunday. It'll be around 60. Right now, it's 46 degrees in Boston
14: at 8.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Good morning. I'm Steve Inskeep.
7: And I'm Leila Faldin. You've seen them. All the lettuce jokes out of the UK comparing Liz Truss's short time as Prime Minister to the shelf life of a head of lettuce. In the lead up to her resignation, a live stream from the British tabloid newspaper The Daily Star captured the world's attention, a head of iceberg lettuce wearing a blonde wig and googly eyes next to a photo of the embattled Prime Minister. The caption asked, Will Liz Truss outlast the lettuce? Well, she didn't. When Truss announced her resignation just 45 days into her time in office, the lettuce celebrated its win with British flags and starlights. And Truss became the shortest serving prime minister in British history. Well, we've got the man who inspired all these lettuce jokes when he made that first comparison in the pages of The Economist. Andrew Palmer is the Britain editor at The Economist, and he joins us now. Good morning and welcome to the program.
30: Good morning, Layla. Lovely to be here.
7: So all lettuce jokes aside, let's talk about why Liz Truss's tenure was such a mess.
30: Yes, she is now possibly the worst prime minister we've ever had. That will be a a debate for historians, but um, really the thing that blew her up was a big mini budget, um, which uh, she unveiled along with her chancellor on September the 23rd. It was a package of unfunded tax cuts. There was no clear sense of how it would be paid for. The financial markets took fright. And ever since then, she's had to sort of systematically U-turn and that shot her authority. Um, over time, her ability to control her party disintegrated, and by yesterday it became clear that there was absolutely no point to Liz Truss, um, and she had to resign. So an, a very brief and very unsuccessful tenure.
7: Is she a, a, to blame alone, though, for the financial situation? It is a time where inflation is a problem across the continent as are rising prices.
30: Uh That's totally fair. Um, It is um, difficult globally at the moment. Uh, However, what Ms. Truss um, and her chancellor decided to do was embark on a borrowing spree at the point that inflation was rising. So they stuck their heads above the parapet with a really, really risky fiscal strategy um, and uh, in so doing made themselves a target. So it is true that interest rates are rising Um, everywhere. It is true that cost of living is under threat uh, and under pressure across Europe, but they absolutely exacerbated it and there is now a premium on um, British government debt, which is referred to in the markets as a moron premium, um, and that has been caused by uh, what the British government did um, a few weeks ago.
7: So what does this now mean for the Conservative Party, now a divided party having to choose yet another Prime Minister? We're hearing the names include Boris Johnson, who had to leave in scandal, and trust replaced him. What does it mean for the party?
30: Yeah, the party is really in a kind of spiral um, at this point. Um, they've been in power for 12 years. Um, there's a sense of exhaustion um, around them. Uh, ever since the Brexit vote in 2016, it's been riven by factionalism. Um, and there's been a, a premium placed on ideological purity about, about Brexit. Uh, we are going to have had um, you know th- three prime ministers in the space of a matter of of months mm-hmm. um, very very shortly and it 's not clear that whoever the new person is will be able to unify um, this group it's it 's a very very factional unhappy party at this at this point. The only thing keeping it together is you know a sense that to go through this again would be totally ridiculous and the pressure from the markets. They have to come up with a credible fiscal plan um, under the new leader um, and that pressure will concentrate minds.
7: Do they have the public's trust though at this point with with the chaos, with the political and financial chaos?
30: Absolutely not. Um, that has been uh, sacrificed. Uh, the, the opposition Labour Party has a huge lead um, in the polls. Uh, and if there was an election now, um, the Tories would be facing a landslide defeat. Uh, they would, they would, they would have a crushing, crushing loss. Uh, however, the the election timetable is in their gift, mm-hmm. uh, and they don't have to call one uh, until um, as late as January 2025. It's it's possible that one could halt, could happen earlier if enough Tories decide that their government is is so kind of inept and so bad for the country that it's worth bringing on their own demise. But at the moment, we're not not quite there yet.
7: So let's talk about what happens next. What is the process now um, to choose the next prime minister? And how likely is it actually that Boris
30: Johnson would come back? Uh, Yes, the Johnson word. So um, we have a very accelerated um, uh, timetable now. So what happens is that by Monday, Um, candidates within the parliamentary party had to have got at least 100 nominations to enter the race. That's a very high bar, and what that means is there's only a maximum of three can be in the race come Monday. It is possible that only one hits that bar, so we might know as soon as Monday who the next prime minister is. If, however, we get to two people who um, go head to head, then Tory party members um, will decide and they must decide by the end of next week. So come what may, whether it's early or at the back end of next week, we will know who it is. And as for who leads Britain next, uh, Mr. Johnson is definitely in the frame. A lot of people feel that he was unfairly turfed out mm-hmm. um, for, for, for various misdemeanors, dishonesty, um, for throwing parties during the lockdown era. They also think that he's a proven election winner and that he has a mandate because he was in charge of the government last time there was a general election. On the other hand, he's very, very divisive um, and, and his chances um, of, of holding the party together are slim. So the other person to look out for is Rishi Sunak, former Chancellor of the Exchequer, came second to Liz Truss over the summer, uh, fiscally prudent and would probably reassure the markets. It's probably down to those two.
7: Andrew Palmer is the Britain editor for The Economist. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Three real estate firms based in the wealthiest parts of the nation's capital and some of their executives will have to pay a landmark $10 million settlement to the city for blocking families with lower incomes from their buildings. The firms are also banned from managing property in D.C. because they're accused of discriminating against renters who use Section 8 vouchers and other forms of housing assistance. Washington, D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine says it's the largest civil penalty in a housing discrimination case in U.S. history. And he said that when he announced it yesterday. And he joins us now. Good morning and welcome to the program.
19: Good morning, Leo. It's a pleasure to be here.
7: So, Attorney General, this settlement is historic because of the price tag, but it also sends a message, right? What is the larger message your office and this penalty sends to real estate firms operating in
19: D.C.? The larger and clear message is All real estate firms, all landlords, all management companies in the District of Columbia must accept anyone in the District of Columbia who has a housing voucher. The reason why housing vouchers are so important is because the skyrocketing cost of rent. We know that even when people work one, two, and three jobs, they still can't make ends meet in terms of paying rent in the District of Columbia. These vouchers, which support people who already pay 30% of their income for rent, are necessary. And if you don't accept them, the Office of Attorney General is going to investigate and issue significant penalties.
7: Now you've compared landlords breaking the law, refusing to accept these vouchers, to Jim Crow era housing discrimination policies. If you could expand on this type of discrimination and what it does in a city like D.C. that's dealing with these high levels of gentrification and displacement of longtime black and brown residents.
19: Sure. Uh, My comments about the Jim Crow era discrimination relate to the demographics of the District of Columbia. And indeed, what we found is that 95% of voucher holders in D.C. are black, 79% are women. 32% are single mothers. 66% make less than uh, $20,000 a year. And so, because the overwhelming majority of people, 95% are black, those folks who discriminate against voucher holders are essentially um, committing racial discrimination and are barring blacks from renting. I wanna say another point, Mm -hmm. broadly more nationally. Where the demographics are not as they are in the District of Columbia, let's just think of rural white America, voucher holders are overwhelmingly white. Only 19 states have laws like the District of Columbia, which make it discriminatory to deny voucher holders. That means in rural areas where they're overwhelming white folks, they too are likely being discriminated against. So don't mess, don't get confused about race think about poverty, think about the working poor, think about what's right. And what's right is uh, to allow people to pay rent even if they're getting support from the government.
7: In the few seconds we have left, do you want other cities to follow suit?
19: Yes, it's in- it's incredibly necessary. And as you know, discriminating is not easy to detect. In our case, we had a whistleblower who stood up in the face of being called names and being accused of fraud, and she told us the truth.
7: Washington DC Attorney General Carl Racine, thank you so much for your time.
19: Thank you.
12: Tomorrow on Weekend Edition, why are mosquitoes attracted to some people more than others? Tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. It's Morning Edition from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoi. Coming up in this week's StoryCorps, a mother and daughter who came to the U.S. from Iran talk about the potential pitfalls of wearing a hijab in America. It's
14: 8.20. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use.
19: ALPrime.com. A lot of us talk to our cars when we're driving. In my case, it's mostly me saying, come on, come on, come on, please start. If your car's like that, then maybe it's time for a new conversation. Hamglin Washington from Snap Judgment. Let's talk about donating your car, your old or unwanted car, whatever it is. It can be turned into Morning Edition, Wait, Wait, or Snap Judgment. Trust me, your car will understand. Here's how.
4: Just
0: go to WBUR.org. A quick bit of trivia for your Friday before your forecast. For the first time ever, an Asian-American will appear on U.S. currency. Anna Mae Wong will be on quarters that start shipping from the U.S. Mint next week. Wong was a movie actress in the 1920s and 30s. She was the first Asian-American woman to get a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. We'll have clear skies and a high near 64 today. Tonight it drops to a low around 48. Tomorrow, sunny again and slightly warmer with a high near 68. Sunday, mostly cloudy with a high near 62. There's a good chance of rain in the afternoon. It's 46 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for
9: NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com And from XChair, ergonomic home and office chairs. At home or in the office, XChair offers dynamic variable lumbar support, as well as LMAX heating, cooling, and massage technology at XChair.com And from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. This is NPR. It's
7: Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden.
12: And I'm Steve Inskeep. In this country, a lot of discussion in the fall election centers on transgender kids. It's not the main issue, but it's there in laws passed by some legislatures and in the rhetoric of many candidates. This morning, we'll hear how that issue is experienced by one teenager in Tennessee. Here's Blake Farmer of our member station, WPLN.
26: People used to call Adams a tomboy. His mom never liked that. But he certainly is adventurous. At a wooded park in Nashville, he stumbles upon two young deer lying in the tall grass.
2: The mom went
23: down there. Oh, yeah, I see. Look. I wonder if they're brothers or sisters.
26: For the last few years, gender has dominated life for 14-year-old Adams and his mom, Elizabeth. Elizabeth we're only using their middle names because they fear harassment. Adams was assigned female at birth.
29: Like if
9: I could choose not to be trans, I probably would. <laughs> like if I cho- It would cho- be easier. Yeah, if it? I could choose to just be a cisgender girl, I probably would.
26: Adams came out to his mom a few years ago. As puberty began, his body started fighting his brain, growing breasts, and menstruating. So Elizabeth began working to get him into a local pediatric transgender care clinic at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. It took nearly a year to get an appointment and another year of consultations.
23: A little selfishly, I'm kind of holding back because I know once the testosterone is started, we start puberty all over again, and I'm not handling round one real well.
26: But she's given Adams the green light for hormones once they can get their therapist to sign off. What Elizabeth's not quite ready for is any kind of surgery. Adams is still on the young side to be eligible for what's known as top surgery. In his case, removing the breasts he binds to his chest every day.
23: I don't want to be closed-minded and say it's just a phase because I don't think it is. But I just surgery just seems drastic to me right now.
26: In the end, though, Elizabeth says her son feels like he's in the wrong body, and that feeds into his depression. He's already confronted some scary times.
23: I want to ease that for him. I mean, that's what I would say to a parent who's terrified and who's wanting to shut these clinics down. I would say it's scary, but in the end, it's going to save your kid. I mean, the suicide rate is off the charts for trans kids.
26: But the hope they find in gender-affirming care now faces some fierce resistance in Nashville and a growing number of cities and states. An anti-trans activist put out a supposed expose that claimed Vanderbilt was butchering children, despite Vanderbilt following the medical standards of care. Then came the radio ads targeting liberals.
19: They push girls to take testosterone
26: so they grow facial hair. Vanderbilt has agreed to pause surgeries, though the medical center revealed just how few occur on minors, roughly five a year, and never on genitals. Vanderbilt would not make anyone available for an interview, but the clinic's director, Dr. Cassandra Brady, has said they are more cautious than clinical guidelines even recommend. She told state lawmakers just last year that the clinic goes above and beyond with parental consent.
23: So that means if parents are divorced and one disagrees and one agrees, then that child cannot have the hormone or hormone-blocking therapy.
26: The situation for Elizabeth and Adams is a little more straightforward. Sadly, Adams' father died from an accidental drug overdose a few years ago, but she's been cautious.
23: Even if it was the process to just say, yep, sign me up, I can't imagine any parent would just jump into it headfirst, no matter how open they may be.
26: As teenagers tend to be, Adams is ready to get going, even though he acknowledges his young brain is not great at fully processing long-term consequences.
9: Everyone's just like, oh, well, why don't you just be a girl again? And then, like, (laughs) I I went through that phase before, like, a couple years ago. I went through that phase just like, oh, maybe I'm just a girl and I'm just, it was just... It was the worst year of my life when I did that.
26: Elizabeth is genuinely concerned about the health and safety of her son and of all trans teens if politicians make gender-affirming care off-limits. For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Nashville.
12: It's Friday, which is when we hear from StoryCorps. In 2010, Besma Alawi came to the United States from Iraq, along with her one-year-old daughter Donna, the family eventually settled in Florida. Basma and Donna recently came to StoryCorps, and Donna, who's now in the ninth grade, wanted to ask her mom a question.
31: Why won't you let me wear the hijab? I don't want you in a young age experience what I experience every day. I remember it was the first couple of months of us being in the United States. You were in the stroller, and I was walking you to the shopping center and someone start cursing and ask me to go back home. I was so terrified. I realized it was not safe for me to go out by myself with a child in Orlando. Did you ever consider removing it? I have never considered taking it off. I want to make sure that you are ready So when you wear it, you can handle yourself in a way that I don't worry about. What are your dreams for me? Strong women don't dream. I want you to live in the society where you can walk in the street and people welcome you, and for you to have the full freedoms to decide for yourself whatever you want to do.
12: Besma Alawi and her daughter Donna Aljubori, for StoryCorps in Jacksonville, Florida. Their conversation will be archived at the American Folklife Center of the Library of Congress. you've joined us on your NPR station which brings you Morning Edition. You can continue following NPR news throughout the day on this station and you can also find us on social media. Visit the Morning Edition Facebook page. You can also follow us on Twitter where Rachel Martin is at Rachel NPR. A. Martinez is A. Martinez LA. Layla Faddle is Layla Faddle and I'm NPR Inscape. This is NPR News.
0: This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. Up next, former Trump White House advisor Steve Bannon may be sentenced to up to six months in jail today for failing to respond to a subpoena from the House committee investigating the January 6th attack. It's 8:29. Check out the Boston Book Festival Friday, October 28th and Saturday the 29th. WBWAR hosts will be there. Get details at WBWAR.org events.
14: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brimmer and May, a pre-K through 12 all-gender day school in historic Chestnut Hill. Learn more at their open house, October 23rd, brimmer.org. And Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at
20: cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is accusing Russia of planting mines at a hydroelectric dam in southern Ukraine, which is under the control of Moscow's forces. The BBC's Hugo Bachega reports the Ukrainian government says if the plant were destroyed, it would cause a catastrophe.
32: He says that 80 communities could be flooded if this dam explodes, including the city of Kherson, which is the main city in the south of the country, one of the largest Ukrainian cities under Russian occupation. The president hasn't provided any evidence. There's been some speculation in the last few days that Russia could be planning a so-called false flag attack, in other words, trying to attack this dam and then put the blame on the Ukrainians. We know that the Ukrainians are advancing there. They're carrying out this counter offensive they're making some gains along the Dnipro River, and the key target here is the city
22: of Kherson."
20: The BBC's Hugo Pacheco reporting. Billionaire Elon Musk says he's planning massive layoffs at Twitter once his purchase of the social media site is finalized. According to the Washington Post, Musk is planning to eliminate 75 percent of the company's employees. The deal is expected to close at the end of the month. You're listening to NPR News in Washington.
0: From WBR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Class is in session in Haverhill today. Teachers ended their four-day strike late last night. That comes after they reached a tentative agreement with school officials. The strike started on Monday. The teachers were pushing for higher pay and better staffing. A proposal on the Massachusetts ballot could change the way stores sell alcohol. Question three would double the number of beer and wine licenses a company can have, but it would also reduce the maximum number of hard liquor licenses a company can have. WBUR's Vanessa Ocevillo explains. The Massachusetts Association of Package Stores
17: is leading the Yes on 3 campaign. Its executive director, Rob Millian, says the measure protects small businesses, but also satisfies larger chains that want more beer and wine licenses.
18: Stores across the state recognized that they needed to do something to offer a compromise in order to create a stable atmosphere where they can coexist with these large interests.
17: Opponents say the proposal stifles competition and harms the customer. Among other changes, Question 3 would also allow stores to accept out-of-state driver's licenses to check for age. For 90.9
0: WBUR, I'm Vanessa Ochevillio. Somerville and Milton are among the top 20 best places to live in the U.S. That's according to Money.com's annual 50 best places to live list. The rankings are based on factors like quality of life, economic opportunity, and diversity. Somerville ranked number seven overall. Milton was in the 17th spot. The list gave the top ranking to Atlanta. It's 8.33.
11: WBUR supporters include the MIT Museum, completely reimagined and now open in its new location in Kendall Square. Curious?
0: The Bruins' hot start keeps going. They beat the Anaheim Ducks 2-1 to one in a shootout last night at the Garden. Boston has won four of its first five games of the season. The Bees will host the Minnesota Wild tomorrow. Tonight, the Celtics will visit the Miami Heat. And in your forecast, sunny and in the mid-60s today, clear and upper 40s tonight. Tomorrow, sunny again, and in the upper 60s. Sunday, cloudy and low 60s with a good chance of rain that may last into Monday morning. It's 47 degrees in Boston at 834.
9: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies-buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com, and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com, and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation.
7: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin.
12: and I'm Steve Inskeep. Donald Trump's former advisor Steve Bannon faces sentencing in a federal courtroom today.
7: Yeah, he was convicted of two counts of criminal contempt of Congress. He defied a subpoena from the House panel investigating the January 6th attack.
12: NPR justice correspondent Carrie Johnson is covering the sentencing. Hey there, Carrie.
21: Good morning, Steve.
12: What was Bannon's crime?
21: Remember, this all started when the House January 6th Committee wanted documents and testimony from Steve Bannon about the attack. This panel wanted to know why Bannon said all hell is going to break loose tomorrow, one day before the assault on the Capitol. Bannon, a promise to make life difficult for the attorney general and for Democrats, here's what he told reporters when he was charged.
13: I'm telling you right now, this is going to be the misdemeanor from hell for Merrick Garland, Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden.
21: But things didn't turn out that way. Bannon put on no defense during his trial in July, and the jury didn't take very long at all to convict him. Bannon is going to find out his punishment today.
12: Of course, that's up to the judge, but prosecutors get a say. What are they saying about uh, the defendant?
21: Prosecutors say Steve Bannon pursued a, quote, bad faith strategy of defiance and contempt. They want him to serve the maximum under the guidelines that would be six months in jail and a fine of $200,000. DOJ says Bannon played games and tried last minute tricks to avoid punishment, totally disregarding the law. Prosecutors gave the judge a full page of examples of bombastic remarks Bannon made on his podcast, which traffics in conspiracy theories. Bannon also promised to go medieval on his political enemies, Justice wants this judge to send a message to others who fail to comply with Congress that there's going to be a price to pay for that
12: okay so how medieval is he going as he prepares for his sentencing
2: here
21: well bannon is asking the judge for no jail time at all but if there has to be any punishment he wants it to be probation he also wants this judge to hold off on sending him to jail right away he wants to remain free pending an appeal there are some signs the judge carl nichols might buy bannon's argument
2: Hmm. the
21: judge has expressed some concern about a 60 year old legal precedent that says The Justice Department only needs to prove Bannon made a deliberate choice not to comply with Congress, not forcing DOJ to prove that Bannon had an improper motive. And the judge may think that the appeals court will want to hear that argument, and Bannon may have a good case to make there that he relied on advice from his lawyer and therefore didn't intend to break the law in his mind.
12: Hmm. Well, what are the larger implications of this sentencing and what message it sends?
21: Well, we have a case coming up in November involving former Trump trade advisor Peter Navarro. He's scheduled to go on trial here in D.C. for other charges that he blew off the January 6th committee. And while prosecutors decided not to charge Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, there's an open question of whether Trump himself will flout a subpoena that's coming his way from that same January 6th committee. So there's going to be more action on these fronts in the next weeks.
12: NPR's Carrie Johnson, always a pleasure hearing from you. Thanks.
21: Thank you. Ukrainians
7: are keeping a close eye on the U.S. midterm elections. The chance that Republicans will take control of the House has triggered concerns about U.S. long-term support for the war effort. NPR correspondent Franco Ordonez reports from Kyiv.
33: The 21-year-old budding influencer Marta Markarova and photographer Kirill Lobeseram sit on a downtown park bench. They take a break from talking about Instagram to talking about support for the war.
23: We have uh, some problems in our country, and we need help very, very, very much.
33: Besadab holds up his phone. He says billionaire Elon Musk's controversial comments about negotiating an end to the war and the upcoming elections are the top issues trending on his social media channels. He's worried. I know in the States
22: there's going to be elections.
33: Soon there might be some changes, and society may be shaken. Matkarova nods before switching back to Ukrainian.
8: Elections always bring some changes.
33: It's not just young people on social media who are paying attention. A line of Ukrainian politicians, activists, even soldiers have been traveling to Washington in advance of the midterms. Yevhenia Kravchuk is a member of President Volodymyr Zelensky's party in Ukraine's parliament. She says her colleagues make sure to meet with both Democratic and Republican leaders.
4: And every time uh, from both of the parties, uh, we receive confirmation that bipartisan support will continue. —
33: Dozens of House Republicans voted against a Ukraine aid bill in May. And last month, all but 10 House Republicans voted against a government funding package that included billions of dollars earmarked for Ukraine. Mykola Kinjazitsky is a member of parliament who represents Western Ukraine. He worries about the vocal group of Republicans, many of whom are aligned with former President Donald Trump, as well as conservative TV pontificators who have been speaking out against the billions of dollars going to
6: Ukraine.
5: When we see Fox News commentators from our perspective promote isolationist positions, that looks like
31: support for Russia.
33: It's not an easy subject to talk about here, where government officials say avoiding partisan politics in the U.S. is a key pillar of Ukrainian foreign policy.
6: That was the lesson learned from the Trump time.
33: Petro Burkovsky is a senior fellow at the Democratic Initiatives Foundation and spent years in the Ukrainian government. Speaking at a mall that was reopened after being bombed, he says leaders never want to be in the position again of appearing to take sides.
6: So it means that you are
33: hedging your uh, bets, working with both parties. Burkovsky lamented how Ukraine got sucked into Trump's first impeachment after Zelensky came close to submitting to Trump's demand to announce an investigation into the family of then-candidate Joe Biden. Many Ukrainians just don't know what to believe because they simply don't understand U.S. politics. That's why people are misinformed. Volodymyr Dubovic is the Director of International Studies at Odessa Metchnikov University. He's had to tell several Ukrainian reporters recently that no, the country will not lose weapons if Republicans take the House. When there is someone, let's say a member of the House, and he or she speaks about why are we spending money in Ukraine, is corrupt, it's not winning. And people in Ukraine hear this. It means like, oh my God, that's a new American position. At a downtown coffee shop, Vadan Zahodzetsky says he's not worried. He believes in the balance of power in Washington. Even if a few Republicans support a different course regarding Ukraine, they won't do much change. And he says Ukraine has bigger problems than U.S. politics.
5: I
8: have concerns about the politics of only one country that affects our country and our security. And that's
33: Russia, Franco, Ordonez, NPR News. Keith.
7: This is NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Next year on Morning Edition, we follow the Boston lawyers representing migrants unexpectedly flown to Martha's Vineyard by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis as those attorneys tour facilities at the southern U.S. border. In your forecast clear and mid-60s today, we fall into the 40s tonight, then tomorrow sunny and in the mid to upper 60s. It's 48 degrees in Boston at 843. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack
10: College, offering online and on-campus master's in education programs and licensures for teachers. Learn more at
0: online.merrimack.edu. Now in business news, a campaign to build a federal biomedical research facility in Massachusetts is ramping up. The recently announced ARPA-H project aims to accelerate research into diseases like Alzheimer's and cancer. A local coalition of leaders from universities, hospitals, and life science companies posted an open letter to Congress yesterday. It argues Massachusetts has the density of resources necessary for the facility to thrive. Workers in the UMass healthcare system are getting raises as a result of a recently ratified union contract. The Massachusetts Nurses Association tells MassLive the health care professionals will receive at least an 8 percent pay boost. Boston entrepreneur and Kayak.com founder Paul English is launching an app to help fight fake restaurant reviews. English says the Deets app acts as a place where people can share recommendations among friends. It currently works for restaurants in local cities including Boston, Cambridge, and Somerville. It's 844.
14: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series. The L.A. Philharmonic performs Mahler's First Symphony and the Boston premiere of Gabriela Ortiz's Altar de Cuerda, October 23rd at Symphony Hall. Learn more at CelebritySeries.org.
0: This is WBR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shenoy the group of South Americans who were unexpectedly flown to Martha's Vineyard last month started their journey in the U.S. at the country's southern border. The Boston nonprofit Lawyers for Civil Rights is representing them in a class action lawsuit. Executive Director Ivan espinosa Madrigal and his team traveled down to Texas recently to understand the conditions for migrants at the border.
13: That connective tissue between what happens at the border and what happens in Boston exists it is tangible, it is concrete, and it is proven time and time again as humanitarian crisis after humanitarian crisis
26: brings it to our doorstep.
0: Those conditions are constantly changing and became even more scrambled with the new Biden administration policy announced while the team was on the ground. WBUR's Chrisella Guerra joined the attorneys on their fact-finding mission visiting migrant welcome centers and local nonprofits.
8: I meet Daniel Rodriguez outside a community health center in Juarez, Mexico. We're standing next to a bridge connecting the city to El Paso. Families sit on the floor. Inside the building are showers and a kitchen. He says he never would have left his home in Venezuela if he had known about the Biden administration's new program. It limits the amount of Venezuelans coming to the U.S., requiring them to enter via air and to have a financial sponsor. Why would the United States do this, Rodriguez asks. He wouldn't have risked his life trekking across nine countries, past bodies of migrants who didn't make it out of the jungle alive. He wouldn't have left his family. He has a place to go, but cannot afford a flight. He asked me to look at a message one of his children sent on WhatsApp.
5: Papa, ya Chippy me dijo, lo siento mucho, mi amor. Todo el sacrificio que pasaron y todo para que no pudieran pasar.
8: Dad, Chippy already told me. I'm so sorry, my love. All the sacrifice you all went through just to not be allowed in. Until last week, Rodriguez had reason to think he would have gotten over the border to El Paso. There were up to 10 buses a day leaving the city run welcome center for the Northeast. They were processing 500 to 600 migrants daily, nearly all from Venezuela. Biden's restrictions have left many stuck in limbo, with no options except to register online and hope to qualify for asylum. On a bus, Joy Avile says he thought they were going to say welcome to the United States. Instead, they said welcome to Mexico. Avila is one of many surrounding Espinosa Madrigal, asking for his advice as an immigration attorney. Many tell him they were held in detention for hours or days, their extra clothes and essentials taken, except for phones, IDs, and chargers. He tries to explain the new federal policy. Some say they arrived in the U.S. before the new policy took effect. Edgardo Chavez says he was expelled but his two brothers let in. He holds up a video they sent from a construction site. They're already working. Darvis Romero summarizes the frustration they all feel. Stuck. We don't know what's going to happen to us. No one is telling us anything.
27: Shelters throughout
8: Juarez are full, with migrants removed from the U.S. since the rule took effect last Wednesday. The local government has opened an emergency shelter.
13: El
8: In El Paso, Espinosa-Madrigal held several Know Your Rights workshops for new arrivals at welcome centers, educating them about their paperwork and reminding them to register their new address. These are the lucky ones, those who made it through processing before Biden's new mandate. But they now face a new set of challenges.
13: And now the question is, what does the future look like for them? And that's not guaranteed. And so in that respect, the Martha's Vineyard immigrants are just as unstable as any other migrant who comes to the country and needs to start
26: making their way.
8: At this crossroad between two nations, some call the border the New Ellis Island. It greets families of travelers who arrive with the hope that this will just be another stop, on their way to navigate new cities, new laws, and a new language. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm la Guerra.
0: This is 90.9 WBORM. I'm Rupa Shinoy. As many colleges have students return to classrooms for the first time since the pandemic, old thorny issues are resurfacing like questions about accessibility. Coming up, we look at... How, for some, simply getting to campus is difficult. And coming up at noon today, it's here and now, and Peter O'Dowd is here in studio. No, he's not. I'm very sorry, Peter. Peter, where are you today? All right.
6: I'm in my closet in Phoenix, just as normal. But it's kind of like a studio, I guess.
0: It might be cooler here. (laughs)
6: It probably is. Um, Look, there's two stories I'm really excited about today. First of all, I'm going to be speaking with the vice mayor of a town called Colinga, California. Uh, It's near Fresno. The town expects to run out of water by the end of the year. We've got this terrible drought happening in the west. The town's water deliveries are getting cut back to the point where they've had to go out and buy water at really, really hot, sky-high, expensive prices. And the question is whether or not Colinga is a canary in the coal mine, so to speak, uh, as we all face a hotter and drier future. And then, secondly, uh, dig around in your pocket sometime soon. Look for some quarters because uh, you might find one with the picture of Anna Mae Wong on the back. This was the first Asian American to ever appear on U.S. currency this week. Uh, She was a Hollywood star in the 20s and 30s, faced just a tremendous amount of adversity and racism uh, during her career. I knew nothing about her, but we're excited to learn more today because the mint started printing her quarter this
0: week. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. It's great that an Asian American is on there, but I was wondering kind of why her, you know? I hope you talk about that.
6: Yeah,
11: hope we'll find out. Yeah, absolutely.
0: All right. Thank you, Peter. Mm-hmm. That's here and now today at noon. It's 851.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Ad Club's Women's Leadership Forum. In person on October 24th. Hear from influential speakers and visionary women driving positive change in the world. Tickets at adclub.org. Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com. And Loomis Sales, a performance-driven investment manager, navigating challenging financial markets around the globe since 1926. Learn more at loomissales.com. A new documentary looks at Tanya Tucker's country music
2: comeback after linking up with musician Brandy Carlisle. She was young when she started. She's young now. We have her here. Let's stop screwing around. Let's make sure we get out to see her
9: play because she built us.
2: I'm Elsa Chang. More on the return of Tanya Tucker this afternoon on All Things Considered starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
32: Student loan forgiveness is still on.
14: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And by McDermott, Will, and Emery, helping dealmakers secure the best possible outcome in every transaction. Learn more about McDermott's private equity practice by visiting mwe.com slash PE.
32: I'm David Brancaccio in New York. The Education Department this week began taking applications for student loan relief up to $10,000 or $20,000, depending on the type of loan. And now this Biden debt forgiveness has survived its first Supreme Court test.
3: Marketplace's
32: Nova Safo is here with details.
3: It did indeed. Justice Amy Coney Barrett yesterday rejected an emergency request to halt the debt forgiveness program. She didn't offer an opinion, which is common for these kinds of appeals. Her decision was in a lawsuit filed out of Wisconsin, claiming, among other things, that the program violated the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. Now, two other lower courts had quickly rejected that lawsuit. There was also a legal setback in another case brought by six Republican states, which is considered a bigger threat, that lawsuit. A federal judge in St. Louis dismissed the case, though, yesterday, ruling that the states didn't have standing, which is uh, legal speak, David, for the states weren't able to prove that they would be somehow injured by the program. And this is not the only set of legal challenges, though. Uh, Definitely not. There are others. And the one brought by the six states will likely be appealed. Nebraska's attorney general, who's one of the ones who sued, said they believe they do have standing and they're going to keep going. And one thing that works against the states, though, is that the education department at the last minute, changed the program, saying private loans wouldn't qualify for forgiveness. And that was a key element of the state's lawsuit because some people consolidated their federal loans to private loans. So they're now out of luck. But for those who hold federal student loan debt, they can still apply as long as they meet income thresholds, David.
32: Alright, Nova, thank you for that. Now to a story about getting to class with education back to in-person learning after all the remote instruction during high pandemic. From GBH in Boston, Kirk Carapeza filed this report for us.
28: To,
16: Station.
22: to arrive here at Roxbury Community College in Boston, part-time student Chiara Rosario depends on the city's second most popular subway route, the Orange Line. It was shut down for 30 days this summer for repairs.
23: I do not have a car. I do need this transportation.
22: About how much would you say you spend on public transportation every year, ballpark?
23: More than a thousand, but less than a car insurance.
22: (laughs) Standing at a temporary shuttle bus stop outside the college, the 34-year-old single mom tells me she's studying to be a social worker, to pay for tuition and rent. She also works part-time at a grocery store. So reliable, affordable transportation, it's critical.
23: The more time I spend traveling, the less time I have to study, work, and be with family.
22: A lack of dependable transportation can prevent working students like Rosario from earning degrees on time or at all.
23: Students today have complicated lives, managing childcare, work, other family commitments.
22: Abigail Selden is CEO of the selden Herring Smith Foundation. It maps the proximity of public transit stops to community colleges across the country. Her research finds in New England about 20% of community college campuses are not easily accessible by public transportation.
23: Routes and schedules, as well as the cost of public transportation, impact whether or not a school is really accessible.
22: On average, according to the college board, students spend about $2,000 on transportation per year.
23: For context, a full Pell Grant is $6,000 a year. And most of that is absorbed by tuition at many schools, even many community and technical colleges.
22: Back in Roxbury, Kiara Rosario says this temporary shuttle was running about 15 minutes behind this summer.
23: We only use one door in the shuttle and everybody has to be seated. So once all the seats are taken, we have to wait for the next shuttle bus.
22: And she says those delays cut into her study time. In Boston, I'm Kirk Carapesa for Marketplace.
32: And here's the number 1.5 million fewer students in colleges and universities, according to the National Student Clearinghouse. Non-elite private colleges are taking the brunt of this. Historically black colleges and online programs are conversely seeing growth. Checking my market screens here, Dow and S&P futures are both down about 4 tenths percent. NASDAQ futures down 7 tenths percent. Growth in sales came in way down at Snap. The Snapchat firm, the stock's a mess, down 28% in pre-market trading now. Marketplace Morning Report is supported
14: by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. And by Avast, a global cybersecurity company with 435 million users who trust Avast to help take control of their safety and privacy online at avast.com.
32: Now to a sharp decline in a natural resource. Some seven billion crabs, specifically snow crabs, have disappeared from the waters around Alaska. Experts are looking into why, but rapid warming in the Bering Sea is suspected. Alaska has canceled the snow crab harvest first time ever, and economies that depend on these critters stand to lose millions. Marketplace's Savannah Mara reports.
29: Just a few years ago, Alaska's snow crab population was booming. Jamie Gowen with the industry group Alaska Bering Sea Crabbers says businesses were making big investments.
9: They're making improvements to their vessels. They were buying more quota
29: to harvest. Now, Gowen says some of those crabbing vessels won't survive this canceled season, and there will be ripple effects.
9: All the support businesses around our vessels, so whether it's shipyards, fuel docks, welders.
29: will feel the pinch, too. Goins says federal aid should be available to commercial crabbers, similar to what's offered to farmers who suffer crop failures. Chris Anderson, a fisheries economist at the University of Washington, is looking at this as a test case.
22: To try to understand what it looks like when climate change rears its head and really has a footprint on the fishery and what sort of adaptive strategies we can have.
29: Because as oceans warm, he says more fishing economies will have to adjust to these massive shifts. I'm Savannah Marr for Marketplace.
32: The Washington Post is reporting that if Elon Musk becomes the boss of Twitter, there are plans to get rid of three quarters of Twitter employees that would boost cash flow, presumably cheering investors. Fewer people would also mean less curation of tweets, which Musk favors, but there are already warnings that this might mean more hacked user information, spam, child porn, and other harmful content. And I need to update stock index futures. For the NASDAQ, they're down more than what I just said, down 1.3%. S&P futures are down eight-tenths percent In New York, I'm David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM. American Public Media.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. It'll be sunny with mid-60s today, upper four days tonight. Sunny again on Saturday, upper 60s, low 60s on Sunday, and clouds move in, bringing a good chance of rain. It's 49 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the
14: BBC is next. WBUR supporters include Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years, more at sullivantire.com.
5: I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.